Flickin' Out, a podcast about what to eat, watch, read, and listen to, because life is too short to waste time and money on bad shit. I'm Eric. Yeah, I'm Jason. Uh, this week we're trying a new mic setup. Hopefully that will help with some of the audio. And um, once again, a brief warning, uh, we do express our opinions freely and sometimes colorfully on the podcast, so if you have little kids... Uh, in the room, we certainly wouldn't want to be the first time that they heard expletives or swear words, so you might want to use headphones. All right, let's get right into it. This week, we are going to start with Listen, and the theme for Listen this week was your top three jazz records of all time. So recently saw someone post on Facebook uh, something about Jazz has declined in popularity like some enormous amount in the last years, and they're basically celebrating this because they hate jazz. I just want to take a, a brief moment to say to anyone out there, if you're someone who's written off jazz as a category, um, it's kind of like writing off cheese or something. It's so multifaceted. I feel like there's something in it for everyone, and there are some really sublime moments. And it's something, it's a music art form that is unlike any other one. It was invented in the United States, and as part of this culture, it's like we do it better than any culture. Everyone comes to the, you know, jazz musicians from here fly around the world to perform jazz. Um, So, anyways, my point is there's a lot to like, and there's a lot to explore. You could spend your lifetime sort of delving the history of jazz, and if you haven't seen Ken Burns' jazz documentary, I highly recommend it. It's certainly not exhaustive. It's sort of ends maybe you know 20 years too early but as far as um it's the most complete history that anyone has ever put together so uh anyways you want to you want to kick us off here yeah for sure i mean i would the only thing i would kind of add to that too is um you know and for context like eric and i are both huge punk rock fans and probably you know in i think there's a lot of you know we're rock and roll fans. I think, you know, you and I share a pretty wide, you know, wide... Yeah, I love the blues. Of, I even will listen to classical. I listen yeah. to pretty much everything. Yeah, me, yeah, me too. And um, you've turned me on to, like, some uh, ambient stuff that I kind of wasn't into. Well, I will be talking about, I'm sure, a lot of this stuff. But okay. I, guess, I guess what I want to say is that um, I think a lot of people are quick to judge or... Because they may feel, um, you know, intimidated by jazz, or at first, you know, at first listen, a lot of times it just sounds super like noisy, or it could be, or people think, oh, jazz is it's super. You listen to that to calm down. It's like for chilling out, and it's like, well, no, it's the most ferocious thing. It can be the most ferocious thing you've ever heard in your life. I mean, it's hard to, like, describe jazz as, like, it's like this because it's its own world. And, like, Absolutely. you know, whereas punk rock is not nearly as dynamic as, you know, it's, of course, a different apples and oranges. But um, for me, I don't know if there has been another sort of uh, journey into learning about music um, as there was with jazz. And I was lucky enough to have really close friends and family that sort of mentored me and showed me, like, introduced me a bunch of different kinds of jazz, and, like, and I spent lots of years listening to it with them, and just, it, that's what formed my love for it, was 
listening to it with friends. Also, if you love vinyl, there's so many great. Oh. You can go to used record stores and just for in the dollar bin, you can pick up great things. Any of the um, Blue Note, Rudy Van Gelder remasters. Rudy Van Gelder was a uh, famous studio technician, studio engineer who recorded a ton of stuff actually in his parents' bungalow in New Jersey. Um, and they've been, for the past two couple decades, remastering all the stuff that he did and releasing a lot of it on like 180 gram or 210 gram vinyl. And there's absolutely amazing. It's right. Yeah. That stuff is incredible. You know, I will say, well, you, since you brought it up, we got to keep this moving. So I, I apologize. Um, but as a vinyl collector, um, the jazz can be a bummer because there are there's a shitload of people that are just like collectors, and, you, and you're always and you're always questioning their like actual. Are you buying that record because you want to listen to it, or are you buying it because you're a collector and they're driving up prices and whatever? I mean, that happens with collecting anything, but prices do get a little dicey. But that doesn't mean things are being re-released all the time. There's a sh- Miles is Miles Davis. Like, like his the whole tomb is being re-released. Everybody's re-releasing stuff on vinyl. So yeah, and and you get to hear it. The great thing about those re-releases is you get to hear it in mono sometimes the way it was right. originally recorded or whatever. So, yep. so um, top three, top three. That's major. So um, easily for me, um, I think if you got to pick one, and and luckily for me, this is like. I believe one of the most important jazz records ever, and for me it's one of my favorite all-time jazz records, is uh, Live at Massey Hall. So you've got um, Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker together, which does not happen often, right? And this was kind of the last time that happened for them. Um, Max Roach on the drums, Bud Powell, and Charlie Mangus. So you have the collection of the heaviest... Superstars. It's the heaviest hitters of all time, of jazz live recording the story goes so the story is so good about the recording so this Massey Hall Macy I don't know how you say I think it's Massey is a famous uh, club in Toronto everybody's heading up for the show leaving New York Charlie Parker famous junkie hocks his horn the night before can't make can't make the flight somebody gets him on a flight finally he shows up he's got no horn he gets this super shitty plastic saxophone it was in some people the story goes it's a toy it wasn't actually a toy saxophone it was this weird company that was trying out this plastic saxophone they were notoriously fucking terrible just a terrible sounding horn charlie parker played that horn through the entire show like that's what he played because he hawked his real horn in new york and you'd never know i mean he was so such a master that it's you know, I mean, you never know, and, and it's it, it almost he, he's able to breathe life through this piece of shitty plastic, and it's unbelievable. Um, it, and it's I think anybody that knows the recording will tell you it's a shitty live recording. You know, so you you look for the best, and there's different. It's been remastered and stuff, but I, I won't linger on it too long. It's a super famous recording, um, and it's I, I recognize it from like you know, salt peanuts is like. It, just hearing the room tone of it, I don't even need to hear anything else. Just hearing the room tone, I recognize that it's that record, and 
um, soul through the you sit and you listen to the whole recording. I think in this, in somebody may call me on this, but I'm pretty sure this could be a different recording. But you can hear at one point Charlie Parker is so loaded he tips over his chair, and you hear his chair <laughs> hit the ground in the middle of the recording. So. Whatever the the stories abound around this, but regardless, it's one of the greatest yeah. ever. That's amazing. That's a great story. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I guess I'll I'll go first, and all right, I'll give my first pick. Yeah. We can go back and forth here. Um, this one will be familiar to anyone who listened to the last podcast where we talked about Desert Island Discs, and this is how I decided to come up with the top three jazz records category because of our discussion in the Desert Island mm. disc. But my first one is Out to Lunch by Eric Dolphy. Oh, and going out. <laughs> yeah, going, going out. And this is, I mean, even just like the Desert Island disc, this is a tough category for me. And I, I'm sure I'm going to catch flack for some of the choices that I made here <laughs> um, with the four people that listen to this podcast. Um, but uh, Out to Lunch, it's just every time I listen to it, I, I feel reinvigorated by the sense of um, the potential of jazz and what jazz can do. Sure, and yeah. um, Out to Lunch, you know, was an earlier record for Dolphy, but I, I feel like he was like um, young, hitting, hitting his stride. It's like him as a, a band leader, um, you know, other excellent uh, players on the record as well. Um, and every time I hear it, it just, to me, it represents the best that, that jazz has to offer. You're more of a bebop guy. I'm am, more of a yeah. post-bop and free jazz yeah. kind of guy. Get what you pay for. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, I considered things like Ornette Coleman's The Shape of Jazz to Come and some, some things like that, which were also like seminal moments in the history of jazz. But, you know, um, when it comes right down to it, um, Out to Lunch is one of those records. Like, whenever, if someone's going to ask me, I want to listen to a great jazz record, Out to Lunch is one of the first things that pops into my mind. Right, okay, cool. Uh, yeah, not a lot of people would go Eric Dolphy. I like it. And, yeah, you're right. I mean, for me, like, I, that scene was never too much. But, I mean, Eric Dolphy, there's no question, right? It is genius. Um, all right, I'm going to give you my two and three kind of quickly here okay. so we can move on. Um, my number two is The Amazing Bud Powell. Um, just such, you know, I, for me, like, he's just one of those guys. It's so, the lives of so many of these Bob guys were so tumultuous, and he's no different. Times in and out of Bellevue, you know, all that noise, and just still, like, you know, like this incredible like vocabulary that like helped define jazz and move it forward. And he was—it's effortless. It's—it's it's so optimistic. I just cannot ever get enough of Bud Powell. And then I'm going to cheat a little bit uh, on number three. I'm a little bit of a tie. Um, I got—I'm um, an enormous uh, Sonny Rollins fan. Um, so another tenor guy, right? Um, Sonny Rollins is—I don't know. I, I'm not even trying to explain him here, but um, saxophone colossus is one of my uh, that thing. I'll wear it out. It's so great. Um, I love every Sonny Rollins record, um, and there's some amazing videos. Sonny watching him play is like watching. 
He's like he's like a human fucking bagpipe. He fills everything up and then just blows. And just there's a story about him. And there's actually a video where he would you'd see him. He would take a huge drag off a cigarette. And then he'd blow, and there's smoke coming out of the horn. He'd have to replace the pads in his horn all the time, but he still had so much lung power. Amazing Sonny Rollins, um, saxophone colossus. So split between that and uh, Chet Baker Sings, which is his debut vocal yeah. record. It's a great record. It's a great record. Um, I, I, you know, Chet Baker, it, though he, and it's a great entry point for people, he, you know, he's... Easy to listen to, but for me, I mean, I, I'll never get sick of listening to, to Chet Baker, ever. Good one. Yeah. That's that's a really good one. Yeah, I didn't pick any vocalists. I did, uh, for my second pick, I threw a lady into the mix. Good. And not a lady vocalist, which is pretty rare in Whoa. jazz. Uh, I actually picked Alice Coltrane, uh, and the record is Journey into Sachi Danda. Interesting. Or Sachi Dananda. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's this crazy thing. So, yeah. for those that don't know, Alice Coltrane is a harp player. There's an amazing saxophonist on this. I want to say it's Rasan Roland Kirk, but I, I could be misremembering that. Um, but this record, I've I know at least six people that I've spun this record for, and it's so it's this sort of um, like ethereal, sort of almost mythic jazz with all this really luscious harp. Uh, and saxophone, and I know at least half a dozen people who have left my house from hearing this on a really good stereo and gone out and bought this record immediately. No shit. It's it is a transformative record um, in a sort of you know uh, you know you could. It's interesting. Neither of us picked a John Coltrane record. You know, a lot of people who yeah. even don't know anything about jazz, they know Miles Davis and they know John Coltrane. Yeah. Um, and uh, I decided to pick Alice. You know, when it comes right down to it, I think Alice Coltrane for me represents a, a pocket of uniqueness in jazz, um, yeah. and and her records are just blow away, uh, super amazing. I can't recommend it enough. You know, it's something you can spin at a dinner party, and everyone will ask you what it is. No shit, I'll be so, honest, I've never so unique. Been, I've never somehow never listened to it at all once. All right, well, I'll be the next guy that buys it. And uh, for my last one, I picked the record that actually got me really excited and invigorated uh, to first listen to jazz, which was Charles Mingus's Aum. Uh, you know, Better Get It In Your Soul, Goodbye Pork Pie Hat. Mingus was like, I, I was so into Mingus, I named my cat Mingus at one point, and uh, Mingus was a really big deal for me. Um, obviously, he was, you know, someone who went from sort of bebop to post-bop to free jazz and had this sort of uh, incredible career. Like a lot of jazz musicians, you know, he sort of battled with his own demons and his life fell apart at various points. There's a really incredible documentary about him that we watched when we were super, super into him. I can't remember the name of it. but um, And like you, I also sort of cheated and threw, threw an honorable mention in, which is um, Monin by Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, which also features the incredible Lee Morgan and Bobby Timmons. Yeah. And all of those... Jazz Messengers, Art Blakey records, like there's one that Herbie Hancock so first played on. They're all amazing. Yeah, you cannot pick a bad one. So if if anyone wants to just like get in, dip their toe into jazz, any of those Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers records, you could do a lot worse. Oh, start, I, I, start I would those. agree with that for sure. Yeah, and it's those are super accessible too. Yeah, like they're melodic. They're not, you know, those are very accessible. 
Oh, yeah, I love Arnold Blakey. Yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff. All right. All right. So, so that closes out jazz. To move on to something completely different, uh, this week for uh, the food category, we're going to talk about barbecue, something that's near and dear to both of our mm-hmm. hearts. So um, uh, for this, I want to talk about the best local place for you know the people that listen to this that are in Minneapolis, um, and then the best you've ever had anywhere. Sure. Um, you know, as someone who I have definitely done my fair share of sort of backyard smoking sessions and making barbecue on my own. Everyone knows that barbecue is is a an, an elusive and mysterious sort of thing. You can cook a slab of ribs one way and have it turn out amazing, best ribs you've ever had. The next time you on the same grill, you, you repeat everything yeah. pretty much exactly the same way, and you'll get a different result. So the fact that you have these people at restaurants that are day in, day out, on a massive scale, cranking out unbelievably good barbecue, is it's an art form. Yeah, for sure it is. So there's something unique, unique about it. There's obviously a lot of tradition, a lot of differences by region. Um, we're mostly influenced around here by... Um, you know, the Kansas City sort of traditions. There are some people doing maybe some different variations. My favorite place is a place just outside Minneapolis in a small town called uh, Champlin, Champlin, uh, called Q Fanatic. Uh, and it's this guy who's a Culinary Institute trained chef who was doing um, sort of high-end fine dining and basically decided to throw it all over uh, because his passion was barbecue. And he opened up a barbecue joint, and he's doing really innovative, really interesting things, but also just, like, incredible barbecue. Um, So one of the things that I love about this place is none of the stuff comes sauced, but you can get as many sauces on the side as you want. He does really interesting, innovative things. He does, like, pepper teriyaki. He does espresso. He does ghost pepper sauces. Um, All of his sauces are amazing, and you can just get as many sauces as you want. The sides are really good, but the... When it comes down to it, of course, the things that I was judged by are, are the brisket and the baby back ribs. And mm-hmm. the brisket, both the brisket and the baby back ribs at this place are out of this world. How are the greens? You know, I, they have a ton of size to choose from. I'm not just like, I just, I just haven't gotten there. Yeah. They have amazing mac and cheese. And they serve yeah. these like, those like kind of crappy white bread hot dinner yeah. rolls with it too that are just like unbelievably good. <laughs> you, you know, it's just like empty not an ounce of nutrition in these things. How you, far away is this? How far? It's only like 20 minutes outside, maybe 25 minutes. So wow. I make it out there a couple of times a year. It's like a special occasion place for me. Yeah, yeah. So I tend to go out there around my birthday, and I will, will like take new people to town out there or something like that. Yeah. Um, no shit, Q-Fanatic. Q-Fanatic. What the hell is he doing out there? If he, I mean, who knows, right? Cheap. Lot got a lot got yeah. a lot of space. It's in it's in a strip mall, like lots of good sort of hole in the wall oh, sort of yeah, for sure. places are. Totally. Um, and I think that they were maybe thinking about moving or opening a place up in Minneapolis. Actually. Oh really? There was like right around Christmas time, they Dangerous. were like, "We're going to have a big announcement in the new year." And I, I haven't seen anything about it since. But I'll have to check this guy out. I like the ghost pepper. Yeah. Sound. So what about you? Do you have a local place that you like? Local? I mean, I don't know so much. I my first. <laughs> When I first moved here, I lived um, I lived right across the street from Famous Dave's, 
which, um, for anybody listening, doesn't know, is a chain. Um, is that a Midwest chain? I think in, it's Midwest and starting to dip into the South. He's probably is he? Yeah. So I, I honestly don't know a lot about the about the chain or the restaurant, but it's it's mediocre barbecue. It's um, it, it's pretty good. But I ate shitload of it because I live right across the street, and I was just ordering rib tips all the time. And it got to the point. This is before I started working. Um, I was ordering all the time, and the fucking house smelled like smoke. Like, I, because I had like so many of the things, like the the leftover like containers. plastic containers. Yeah. I came home one time, and it smelled like a bar. I was like, oh Christ, that's <laughs> enough of that. Like, I mean, shitty barbecue over and over again. But anyway, um, so locally, um, the only other one that I know is the nineteenth hole. Ted Cook's nineteenth hole. Yeah. Yeah. Which so, is really good. Yeah, very it was solid. Killer. Um, it, that was killer. So um, one of our coworkers, Peter, turned me on to that. Um, he loves that joint, and um, it's a shithole, which yep. is awesome. And, um, and oh, you know, funny thing about him too is it uh, on the wall. It's best ribs I ever had. Signed, famous Dave, which is <laughs> pretty, which is pretty great. Um, so yeah, for local, that's that would be my pick. I don't know a lot though. Um, you know, in barbecue in general, like, I, I kind of, um, I go for, so what's the one that's the vinegar style? Is the Carolina? That's yeah. the Carolinas, yeah. I like that. Yeah. I like that. I think people, I don't know, I don't give a shit. I people. like it, too. I love that. You know, yeah. I love that. Because pulled pork, I love pulled pork. For sure. And, you know, you get that, oh, that vinegar on there, I love that. Um, so, yeah, outside of town, best I've had. To be honest with you, I don't remember the place. It was not surprisingly in Texas. Um, it was not Salt Lake. It was in Austin, and it was um, attached to a gas station. But it was like a weird. It wasn't like it was just an add-on to the gas station. It was almost like the gas station was an add-on to the barbecue joint because it sat like you could see. I, I shit you not, like two hundred people at this place. Picnic tables outside. It was enormous, hmm. and they give you like in Texas the way they at least the way the few places I've been, like, you kind of move through almost like it's cafeteria style. Right. You know, and you just load up here, load up there. They're carving and throwing up on the on the, on the the tray. You just go back. And as you're going, you're like, oh, yeah, of course I need more of that. And then so you come back and you've got this enormous tray, you know, filled with, you know, with every goddamn thing. Um, so Texas Barbecue, they do it right there, too. Right. And obviously, cow is... Cow is king in Texas barbecue, so it's all about the brisket. brisket. And if you're getting ribs, it's usually beef ribs, which they're all right. I'm not. I'm not a huge fan. Obviously, I, I, I prefer pork ribs, but I mean, you can't beat Texas brisket. You know what I'll call bullshit on if we're while we're talking about barbecues? I'm calling bullshit on the hot link. Really, dude? There's so many people that like. Did you I, ever go to Brothers in San Francisco and get the hot link? I did. Yeah, oh I went to Brothers. God. I went to Brothers all the time. That was the place. Yeah. I never, the hot I mean, link from Brothers is amazing. Are you serious? Yes. That's the best hot link I've ever had. I've basically been chasing that hot link for the rest of my life. Shit, <laughs> really? Yeah. I never fucking got it there. I ate at Brothers. I had to have eaten at Brothers 20 times at least and never got the hot link. Because I always, every time I eat a, a hot link, you get some kind of gnarly ass thing that's in a sausage that you're like, oh, what is that? <laughs> Bone? What the fuck is, you know, yeah. something. I, I do agree with you. That for the, for the most part, hot link at barbecue joints is 
disappointing. Yeah. Uh, the hot link at Pappy's in St. Louis, oh, it's just okay. Yeah. The hot link at Brothers, what they did was they used to slice it up. It was awesome, spicy, flavorful, and they would just smother it in barbecue sauce. So it was kind of like almost like a chopped sausage sort of thing. It was so good Jesus on the Christ. like thin white bread that they would give yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god, best hot link I've ever had, and it, it's it suckers me into eating hot link at other barbecue <laughs> places because I'm still <laughs> trying to find a place that has hot link that's that good because it was so good. Shit. Yeah. All right. Wow. I totally had forgotten about that until you mentioned hot link. Wow. All right. I think you know to this day, and I. I have to be honest, I haven't, like, I love barbecue, I smoke barbecue, I have a smoker in my backyard just to do barbecue, but I haven't traveled to a lot of the barbecue meccas. Yeah, yeah, I, mean, yeah. I haven't, um, I am about to go to South Carolina uh, tomorrow, and I'm really excited to go to Scott's Barbecue, which is a whole hog place outside of Charleston that was featured on oh, yeah, Mind of a Chef, that, yeah. where evidently pitmasters from all across the South come to this place to learn how to do whole hog. Because this guy is the undisputed like whole hog pit master throughout the South, so I'm really excited to go to that place. I will report back on that on a future episode. Um, Pappy's in St. Louis is probably the best, you know. And I would put Q Fanatic. It's hard to tell with these things. It's like you eat six, you eat them six months apart. Yeah. How, how do you A B something like that? For sure. But um, Pappy's in St. Louis. I've had some trans transcending experiences with. Uh, the two meat combo of ribs um, and brisket. They have sweet potato fries. They're these little sh- sort of shoestring brown sugar sweet potato fries. When you get them hot there, they're out of this world. Uh, applesauce, green beans. You know, you get uh, your green beans. Yep, really amazing green beans. Sort of like fried crispy with a little sort of spicy sauce on them. Really unbelievable. I'm not like a massive green bean fan, but the way that the like, I went on my birthday. Uh, I happened to be in St. Louis. It was like the day before the day after my birthday. I walked in a dress shirt and dress pants in 107 degree heat. I walked like three quarters of a mile to go to Pappy's. Oh, and I sat down in there, drenched in sweat. Yeah. And got uh, the two meat combo with their uh, baby back ribs, briskets. Applesauce and green beans Holy just shit. to like try to make it slightly healthy. I hope this like, was the end of the day. It was totally the end of the All day. Right. <laughs> and this meal was, I don't know if it was the heat or the walk or whatever, but the ribs, without, I didn't put a single drop of sauce on these ribs, which was just with the dry rub. They were incredible. Perfect texture, super flavorful. Brisket was unreal. What so good. So, Pappy's. I can't believe I haven't been there. Yeah, for all the time we spent in St. Louis, we, I we gotta go. There. It's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah, I gotta go. It's not the same. We've gotten it a couple times uh, delivered when we were down there for shoots or whatever for client things. It's not the same getting it delivered. Got, yeah, that's what you said. You, you gotta, gotta get go it there. there. Yeah, it's definitely different. All right, so that closes out the the barbecue Let's segment. Barbecue. So now from here we're going on to the watch category, and this week uh, we wanted to go with the theme of. Uh, book adaptations, the best and worst, either to TV or film, yep. uh, adaptations from books. I'm interested to hear what you have to say here. Because um, you, I, I got a feeling you got some, some good ones. Um, for me, I got more in the best category. And to be honest, like, I'm, I'm feeling like I'm not really, 
I'm not mind. I'm a film nerd for sure. Like I, you know, studied film. I got you know, I know a lot. I know a lot. I know about a lot of movies, but I didn't dig too deep here on it. I didn't think about it too hard. Um, I'm sure, like going back into the vaults, there's shit that people would argue. But for me, like so, um, just like thinking personally without getting too crazy about it, Amityville Horror was a book that I read when I was um, pretty young. I think I was like, I was I was twelve or thirteen when I read the book. It scared the shit out of me. I was really scared by that book. Super scared. Um, like, the flies, the whole thing. Like, I was really scared about it. And then, when I was too young to watch the movie, I think my parents would be like, yeah, you're, you know, because at that age, you, you can, you're still being told what to do. Right? Um, so, I think you are, right? You're still telling the 12-year-old what to do, aren't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, all right. <laughs> For the <laughs> so, most part. They might not be listening, but you're still telling them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So um, it was a few years later that I watched a movie, and I was like, holy shit, that movie is super scary, too. The movie is really frightening. Right. So that one is definitely, I think, a great adaptation. Um, and in the horror, I mean, in the horror genre, too, um, Shining yep. is, it's, the movie's better than the book, right? Yeah. The book's not that great. I mean, it's fine. It's, the concept, obviously, is amazing. Um, but it does nothing to, it serves way better as a movie. Right. Right. That yep. One. Great movie. Oh, my God. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my pick for the best was, um, a lot of people probably didn't even know that this there is a book that went with this movie, uh, Winner's Bone. Oh, my God. All right. So, yeah, amazing. Yeah. Holy shit, yeah. I can't believe I didn't think of that one. So, yeah. yeah, Winter's Bone, for those that don't know, which is the movie that launched Jennifer Lawrence's career. Yes. Uh, before Hunger that. Games, before all that stuff. So, Winter's Bone was written by the incredible uh, Southern writer Daniel Woodrell, who writes a lot of stuff that's set in the Ozarks area. He does crime and noir. He did um, a one sort of standalone novel that was this... Uh, really interesting historical novel about Missouri didn't enter the Civil War, but uh, and they didn't take sides. But there was a whole group of people that basically rallied and rode as like outriders. I think they were called for the South. Yes, uh, he wrote this a novel called Ride with the Devil that was based on that. And they made it into a movie. It had like Skeet Ulrich in it <laughs> and like a couple other people. Um, not, not a that was that would certainly not make the list of like best, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but this novel, Winter's Bone, one of, the, one of the things I loved about it was it's so rare that you read a book and you're just absolutely floored by a book and how amazing it is. Um, and you know me, I love st- detective stories that have a protagonist that isn't a classic detective, and that's exactly what this is. You oh, have yeah. the young Ree Dolly who's like navigating this incredibly. Um, politically it's it's her own family but it's this like politically dangerous world of like especially for a young girl and she's oh, trying yeah. to she basically has to prove that her father is dead otherwise they lose their farm that's right yeah. and it's the only thing they have left her mother's lost her mind she's basically taking care of her little kids or her little brother and sister, she is like the parent in this family yeah. at this point because her father's been gone and she has to navigate these the treacherous and dark waters both literally and figuratively of her family uh, in this fucked up, you know, 
inbred sort of, you know, uh, redneck mafia sort of thing. And, that, and uh, that movie, you know what that movie does that I think makes it such a great adaptation is it conveys the place as a character. Because the book, the location, like the Ozarks in that, you know, that part of the world is is a thing. It's a, yeah. you know what I mean? And yep. that's a that's a scene there. And it's and it comes through in the book heavily, and it, the movie's steeped in it. Yeah, and the dialogue as well. He's, well that's, Daniel Woodrell is an incredible writer of dialogue, and all of his all of his books pretty unconventional crime and noir. He's got you know a bunch of books like Muscle for the Wing, um, Red Mister is another book. There's all, basically all, all this guy's books are absolutely amazing. Yeah, I think and, and I, I highly recommend everything that he's he's ever done, and he's. Um, you know, certainly not as recognized as someone like Dennis Lehane or George Pelicanos, but I can tell you right now, when both of those writers list off their favorite writers, he makes their, both of their lists every single time. No shit, yeah. I went back after the movie and read the book, because, you know, I didn't know, I, you know, I saw the movie first and then the book after. So let me tell you, um, I think, just to go back to the best for a second, um, Neither of those were my favorite. My favorite, I think, that, that the one that immediately came to mind and, you know, it sits up there as one of the best adaptations for me ever was a book. I read the book um, years before the movie came out. Um, it was The Age of Innocence. Um, I I'm a huge, I love Edith Wharton. I'm a huge Edith Wharton fan. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> I know. It's, I mean, it's a little. I, I'm discovering un, unplumbed depths of Jason Santos here on this podcast. I'm a huge Edith Wharton fan. I love her, um, and um, and I lived in Newport a lot. So the Gilded Age was something that I was super interested in. And the Age of Innocence, like, is kind of the. And isn't that Daniel Day Lewis and Michelle Pfeiffer? So yeah, Martin Scorsese directs yeah. you know the movie, and he does like. He he does it in a way that like it, it acknowledges the novel, and I mean I think to the point you know I, I'd have to rewatch it. It's been a while, but I think to the point where he'll even he has shots of words on page. You know what I mean? Like it's like it's clear that this is an adaptation. Mm-hmm. Like even in his you know in his adapting it, um, it but the the movie's so fucking good. Like the the that's another it, it's a that. It's the little things that are huge, you know. It's the touching of the the wrist when you know because the glove is pulled down a little mm-hmm. bit in that sort of, you know, that stuff is huge, right, in that world. So that's one of my favorite adaptations ever. Awesome. So for worst adaptation, I actually picked another crime writer, um, and I think people will be surprised by this pick, and this will also be something that most people didn't even know that there was a book for, uh, because. And the reason why I picked this was not that the movie was bad, but the movie was so incredibly different that I feel like it did a disservice to a great book. Uh, and that's Drive. Oh. So people loved that movie. That was like an indie darling. It was. You know, everyone loved that film. Mm-hmm. It is a good film. The book, which is a really short book, I th- want to say it's only like 160 pages, written by this. James Salas, the crime writer. Another really good undervalued crime writer. Um, all of his books, really solid. Uh, he wrote this book, and it's about a 
stunt driver that ends up being like, uh, you know, is an incredible driver, learns all these stunt driving chops and basically turns uh, those, parlays those skills into being um, a heist driver uh, in, in a similar fashion. Like you kind of see f- a flavor of that in the first, you know, opening sequence of the film, which is why when the trailer came out with, with Ryan Gosling and that just like first opening sequence where they're in this car chase, I was like, oh yeah, this is going to be money. This is going to be just just like the book. Uh, and once again, bringing the best parts of the book to life. And like I said, I like Drive as a film. I thought it was interesting. Um, but the book... Does no justice to it? It's, it's too different. It's like it no takes, takes this character and sort of this... Um, uh, sort of nascent idea, and then it translates that into something that, like, you know. I gotta read it because I think the movie's really great. It's it's an incredibly quick read. It's like as as quick as um, yeah. as the as drop, the drop. Yeah. if not quicker. No shit. And I think you'll burn through it in the same way. I think I pretty much read it in like one sitting, okay. similar to the drop. Yeah. It's really really good. All right, cool. I'll have to I'll have to check that out. I wanna, so yeah, worst. I mean. <laughs> oddly enough, like, I, I remember, I don't know if just in kind of thinking about adaptations, I went to the same place. I was going back to, I, I was on a, I read a ton of horror books when I was a kid, and probably not long after reading Amityville Horror, I read Salem's Lot, which is a really scary book. It's a great book. Um, the movie's fucking horrendous. Salem's Lot is a terrible movie. So... I don't know, I guess this is the 14-year-old me telling you, <laughs> which is my, my, my worst yeah. book adaptation. Bouncing between Edith Wharton and Stephen King. <laughs> yeah, exactly, high and low. Yeah, so... You, you, know, <laughs> you know, one that just popped in, into mind for me that was a blow-away, uh, and it was a short story, or like at most a novella. What is the movie... Um, they made an incredibly bad adaptation of this um, with Will Smith recently. What is the the name of the book? I'm blanking on the author and the story name. Oh, it About, begins with an E. Um, the guy who he's the uh, he's the last man on earth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, oh, and the whole everyone else is a vampire, basically. I mean, they don't use the word vampire or zombie, but it's basically everyone else has this disease in which they basically oh, if oh. he gets bit, he's infected. And um, he's like basically fortified this house. It was done by the same guy that did that um, that uh, movie with the semi chasing the. And um, he wrote another. Uh, Richard Matheson um, was the name of the author. And I'm trying to remember what the name of this short story is. Like it's a really well known short story. I mean, yeah. Omega Man with Charlton Heston was also based on the short story. Huh. Yeah, shit. I don't know. I don't remember. I, I saw the movie. Yeah, oh, it's going to kill me when I think of it. That yeah. was a horrible adaptation of what is a really brilliant short story. Yeah, and I knew that was. I, I knew it was terrible before I saw it because my wife loved it. She's, <laughs> she thought it was amazing, so I knew that that was. That stay, steer clear of that one. Um, so, real quick before we leave um, this section, I'm, I'm curious just your thoughts on, um, you know, if we're talking about adaptations, Cormac McCarthy. Um, Right. Here's somebody that is writing books specifically to be adapted. Um, what? What's your? I don't know. What's your feeling on that? What do you? What do you think? Like, I mean, not that there's like yeah. 
is it okay or is it not? I mean, I guess my question would be, how do you feel the novels stand, the ones particularly written to be adapted, you know? Um, how do you think they stand up as compared to the movie? Do they stand on their own? Do they, or what do you think? That's a good question. I mean, I think for the most part, his books make really good movies. I'm thinking of, of the most recent examples of, if you think of The Road and No Country for Old Men, I think both those were decent movies. I had a really, fortunately for me, I read The Road right before Helen came out, because I think that's a really tough book to read as a father who has, like, a young kid. Oh, yeah. Because uh, it basically just hit, shoots right to the heart of all the issues you have, like, as a new parent of, like, this transference of, like, it's all about me and my life and all this, too. It's all about making this world for this new new life and everything is now about how do I make the best life for this and protect and yeah. nurture you know and it's 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 almost like you're you come to terms in, in, with your mortality in a new way because it's all about this this new life that you brought into the world and making sure nothing happens to them and the idea that like there's this world where there's no longer food or any living things and all this stuff in the whole world. And, you know, for some reason, The Walking Dead doesn't affect me in the same way, maybe because no. it's too over the top. The road was, like, just bleak well, it's and so real. It's so uh, bleak. And that, that's a hard book. And I, I had a hard time, a similarly hard time watching the film. I mean, I was like, I know where this goes. And right. I, I think I did, maybe I made it all the way to the end of that. And, um, you know, the, the road ends on a slightly high high note, but um, I mean uh, <laughs> the, the, kid, the kid isn't eaten by cannibals, I guess if you right. call it a high note, he's like actually picked, well I shouldn't say anything, but um, and I thought No Country for Old Men I mean part, partially because of Javier Bardem mm. um, well, partially, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ yeah, I mean, amazing Josh Brolin is also amazing he's, in fucking, film. Killer. he's fucking killer <laughs> so good so, yeah. That yeah. He just I just I don't know, yeah, I just wanted to mention it. Kind of you know Cormac McCarthy isn't an easy author, but pretty much everything he's written is definitely worth worth putting in the time. I mean he's someone oh, like sure, yeah. he's the closest to to um like someone like a William Faulkner that we have yep. in our age. Yeah, I, so, yeah, absolutely. And I I love William Faulkner. He's one of my favorite writers. Once again, challenging writer. I don't think Cormac McCarthy is as challenging as Faulkner. Very few oh, people not. are, yeah. with the exception of James Joyce. Um, but uh, definitely worth reading. All right, let's go. Final category. This is a, a nice segue. Um, yeah. For, for the read category this week, we wanted to talk about a book that surprised you. Yeah, so um, I didn't. Um, I, I kind of had a little bit <clears throat> of a tough time here because I, I choose pretty carefully, um, and you know before I kind of yeah I mean I, I choose pretty carefully and for a long time like it was that meant reading classics and you know so I there weren't a lot of surprises like you know Dickens isn't gonna oh my god I can't believe. The, the, this Dickens book is really good. Holy shit, the guy knows how to write. Like, there's yeah. no surprise, you know what I mean? Um, you know, but, um, so, the one that I, I picked from the biggest surprise, I don't remember the author's name, uh, but the book is called Shantaram. Hmm. Shantaram, Shantaram, whatever the fuck. So, it's this, um, the, the author, uh, it's, it's um, semi-autobiographical, um, American living in India, 
Um, the guy is a uh, junkie criminal, comes up through the, um, kind of through the uh, organized crime, low-level organized crime um, syndicate in India. But, you know, it, we, we talk a lot about crime novels, and this is not a, a book about crime. This guy is very much, this book sits very much in the spiritual community. They're like, like, it's kind of, it's so, so it's kind of, hippies love this book, right? So for me, it was kind of like, all right, am I going to read the hippie book? Um, I'm like, ah, fuck it. You know, it sounds like it's got, you know, I, I'm, uh, I'm fascinated by anything from India. Um, you know, any junky writing for whatever reason I love. Um, and I was, I went into it. I'm like, all right, we'll see what happens here. And it's long, you know, it's like 800 pages. Um, and it was a vacation read, and um, it was a couple of years ago, and I couldn't put it down. Like, this guy was, like, it, it's so rich. I mean, India is what greater place, Matt, for, you know, for, backdrop for stories. And, it, you know, it's almost to the point where it's so rich that it takes a master to, to really, like, you know, and having never been there, you need somebody, I you know, to really do it justice, and this book was just so great. Like he, he was able to, you know, take you down through the times when he was coherent and sharp, and able to survive off of his low-level scams into like backdoor, um, you know, like way buried like opium dens where he would disappear for two months. Like he would pay this guy. The guy who ran the opium, then he'd pay him for, it was a heroin opium scene. Like, he'd pay him for two months, and he would never leave this place. He'd laid in this this thing that was, like, two feet tall. It was just enough to lay down, and he would just fix and nod out and, like, never left for two months. And, and so he takes you into that, and then he's up, and he's out, and he's, like, in the slums and falling in love with everyone and, like like, discovering the joy of life again, and you're like, oh my god, like, he's going up, the the heights and lows are just amazing, I was shocked by it, I didn't expect this hippie book to come through with, like, hard-hitting crime shit, junky shit, but also, like, super believable, and, like, stuff that you can identify with, like, spiritual, like, high stuff, it, it was great, I, and there's talk of adapting that to which would be expensive, but yeah. um, that, that's my surprise. I, I got to find out who wrote it, and I should should look that up. But Shantaram, it's not hard to find. It was it's a huge huge hit. Cool. So for me, this was uh, I partially picked this category and this theme just so I could talk about this specific book because I was so surprised that um, I was just completely enthralled by this this book. Um, and I actually listened to the audio book version of it, which was Foxcatcher. Oh, so, shit. you know, recently the, the movie came out and I, the movie was on my radar and I actually listened to the audiobook before, um, before I listened to it. So for those that don't know, um, Foxcatcher is the uh, story of, it's uh, told by Mark Schultz and it's about, obviously, his brother Dave was murdered by John DuPont, who is this um, heir to the DuPont fortune which in, in and of itself is kind of an incredible story, but I was surprised at how little of the book actually 
deals with that. Like, there's probably six hours of audio before you even get to where they meet John Dupont. And it's the story of these two brothers, you know, from a broken home in California, um, poor kids growing up, and they both kind of stumble into wrestling. And they went on to be, like, one of the only brothers who both got Olympic gold medals. They're in the Wrestling Hall of Fame. It's this incredible story of what it takes to persevere in adversity, but... Um, I mean, I could give a shit about wrestling, but the way he discusses the wrestling stuff is absolutely enthralling and fascinating. And it's really a story of for anyone who wants to know what it takes, the dedication, the perseverance, the focus, the hard work that goes into being the best in the world at anything, this, is, this book will break it down for you really? and show you an example for how to get there. And it's really it then becomes unfortunate because you have these two brothers who... Or have this single-minded, almost monomaniacal focus on being the best in the world at wrestling, and they end up getting sucked into the world of this mentally ill, delusional, you know, mega-rich guy who, uh, in a sport where there's no money and no support, and it was easy to be, for them to be preyed on by this guy. Um, and that's how the story unfolds towards the end, and I won't go and give any more of it away, but all I can say is, I highly recommend the book. Either the I, I listened to it from Audible, got the audio version. It was incredible, really well narrated. Um, the movie focuses much more, and it um, they do some slight tricks to kind of condense the narrative. Obviously, focuses much more on just their relationship with John Dupont and um, the eventual murder. And I'm not giving away there in the first five minutes of the book. He talks about his brother being shot by John Dupont. And it was all over the news, so everyone knows about that. I think everything leading up to it and all of the context around it is what makes the story really interesting. And these two brothers' relationship, honestly. And I think it was their relationship that allowed them both to excel and be the best in the world. So absolutely fascinating. I recommend it to anyone. Cool. Come on. So that's it for this week. Uh, Thanks for listening to Good Looking Out. You can find us online at glopodcast.com. You can email at us email us at goodlookingoutpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at GLO Podcast. And remember, life is too short to waste time and money.